The British people have voted to leave the European Union. I will not relent in waging the struggle for freedom and security for the American people. Hello everyone and welcome to the Shadow of the Future, the podcast on global politics hosted by Edward Florent University in Budapest. My name is Tekla Gabricidze and I'm co-hosting today with Nini Basaria. Before we start, I need to add a disclaimer that while we are affiliated with ELTE, the opinions expressed here do not reflect the ideas and views of the university. The very first episode of the Shadow of the Future is about the war that erupted in Nagorno-Karabakh, the place that maybe many of you haven't heard about until recently. And we can say that situation is very turbulent in the region, that is changing quite rapidly. And in this episode, we will try to briefly summarize the starting point and the historical development of this conflict and then analyze the current situation and concerned and involved actors in the process. We are happy to have Paul Dunai as our guest for today's episode. Paul Dunai is an associate professor at the Institute of Political and International Studies at ELTE. For two years, he was director of the OSC Academy in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. He was working at the Geneva Center for Security Policy for many years. He was also a member of the advisory board on foreign and security policy of the Prime Minister of Hungary. And just to be short, Paldunai is an expert in European security with an emphasis on East Central and Eastern Europe, Central Asia and the post-Soviet space. Dr. Dunay, let's start with the first question about the historical wrap-up of the conflict, because as we know, tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan have deep roots. So what is the history of the conflict and when does it date back? Thank you very much for your question. The, the conflict has a very, very long and complicated history. Uh, let's start with a prehistory of the conflict. Uh, in the beginning of the 19th century, the the Russian Empire extended its uh, area to the South Caucasus and occupied these territories. When the Russian Empire significantly weakened upon the end of World War I, the states of the South Caucasus gained independence. That happened basically in 1918, but this independence was short-lived. Even if it was short-lived, this is quite important because this is the time when the countries started to rival each other for territory and influence. And basically, the first war between Armenia and Azerbaijan broke out in 1918, and it lasted until Soviet Russia and then in, then the Soviet Union, as of the end of 1922, occupied the territory and annexed it to uh, the Soviet Union. Then, between 1922 and 1936, uh, there was only one state in the South Caucasus that was called the Transcaucasian Republic. In 1936, when the Soviet Union got a new constitution that we sometimes call the Stalinist constitution of the Soviet Union, uh, <coughs> the situation changed, and thereafter three independent republics were part of the Soviet Union independent, not in the sense of independent statehood, but independent from each other. And that, of course, resulted in a situation that due to the Soviet occupation and uh, subjugation of the people to the central uh, Soviet will in Moscow, Transcaucasian republics had to put aside their conflicts. Nagorno-Karabakh became autonomous oblast of the Soviet Azerbaijan in 1923. And under, under the Soviet regime, tensions were mostly suppressed. How would you assess the decisions made by the Soviet leadership towards Nagorno-Karabakh issue? Extremely intriguing question. Uh, the Soviet Union, in its 70 years of evolution, went through different stages. The longest period uh, that uh, 
was decisive in this conflict is the Stalinist period between basically 1924 and 1953 when, when Stalin died. Uh, the oppression took extreme uh, forms and as a consequence uh, there was no chance for any republic or any territory to change hands without the approval or actually upon the initiative of the Soviet leadership. A turning point in this uh, took place in 1936 with the adoption of the 1936 uh, constitution on December 5 of that year. Uh, thereafter, the Republican borders no longer changed, but oppression remained massive. So if anybody wanted to rebel against the central rule of Moscow, those people either found themselves in, in the Gulag, in this kind of uh, labor camps far away uh, from their permanent habitation, or were physically eliminated. Uh, for instance, the Abhazian leadership faced this when uh, Lavrenti uh, Beria returned to Abhazia and eliminated the Soviet Communist, the, the Communist Party leadership over there. And of course, this uh, continued until Stalin. After Stalin, there was a fairly liberal period uh, under Khrushchev and uh, beyond uh, for the first few years of the leadership of Leonid Brezhnev, but there was no chance to challenge the central authorities of the Soviet Union, although the ways and means applied by the Soviet leadership started to change. It was less physically brutal, but there was no question that the oppression continued. Uh, the central authorities had local bodies, and it was not only the uh, communist parties of the different republics, but for instance, the KGB uh, was of course uh, spreading out in every republic, closely monitoring what happened, and so on and so forth. The situation again started to change with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev coming to power. And not only because Mikhail Gorbachev, of course, was a somewhat more liberal leader uh, than any of its predecessors, that of course resulted in the weakening and in the end the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also because the, the leadership under Mikhail Gorbachev was far less insightful about relations of different republics. The reality on the ground, it was very much a Moscow-based uh, leadership, uh, unlike some of the earlier leaderships where there were always people in the Politburo who had a certain knowledge of uh, the situation on the ground in different republics. And this kind of insightfulness uh, went uh, far out of the, of the Soviet Politburo, the Communist Party's Politburo, which resulted in a situation that uh, there was less central control and as a consequence certain internal disagreements and Republican disagreements emerged, not only in the South Caucasus, although in the South Caucasus it was the most visible. Dr. Dunai, as you already mentioned, when Gorbachev came to power, the situation changed. The people of Karabakh started to campaign for joining Armenia, and they established this Karabakh Committee that was basically a group of Armenian local intellectuals who were highly respected in Armenia. It's interesting what was happening in Azerbaijan by that time, what was the situation there, and how did the Soviet leadership respond to this crisis? So, in 1988, the Armenians of Karabakh voted to secede and join Armenia. That was followed by pogroms in uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, however, the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union rejected the claim of Armenia uh, or actually the Nagorno-Karabakhi Armenians to join Armenia on the basis of which that such changes could only occur if all the parties involved agreed with it. And of course, the Azerbaijani side did not agree with uh, losing the territory. Uh, this is quite important, as I already mentioned, because this meant that legally, when the Soviet Union came to an end in the end of 1991, Nagorno-Karabakh continued to belong to uh, the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic 
which meant that it belonged to independent uh, Azerbaijan as the Soviet Union dissolved uh, according to the so-called Utiposidetis principle, which meant that the territories uh, of the new in the newly independent states would be identical with the territories they had in the end of the Soviet Union as republican territories. So Nagorno-Karabakh, for this reason, continued to belong to Azerbaijan. This was unacceptable to the majority Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh. But we must not forget that at this juncture, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has not yet been a territory which is by and large exclusively populated by an Armenian population. And this led to a military conflict in which Armenia prevailed uh, between 1992 and 1994, uh, after which there was a temporary ceasefire signed in Bishkek, the so-called Bishkek Protocol, uh, where basically temporarily the parties accepted uh, the reality on the ground. But the temporary ceasefire, of course, has in no manner changed the territories belonging. The territory continued to belong legally to Azerbaijan, but physically it was controlled by Armenia. This resulted in an important situation because the Azerbaijani population of Armenia, approximately 40,000 people, escaped from, from Nagorno-Karabakh and went over to Azerbaijan. However, the war did not only occupy uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, but also resulted in a situation that Nagorno-Karabakh, for security reasons, uh, occupied the surrounding uh, seven districts of uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, and that, of course, resulted in a massive exodus of the Azerbaijani population. There are different numbers. Uh, the numbers vary between 600,000 and 1 million. Understandably, the highest number, the 1 million number, is uh, officially declared by Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is of the view that uh, Azerbaijan had to take up approximately uh, 1 million Azerbaijani people on its territory uh, due to the war and the following arrangement. Besides the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, conflicts also emerged in other post-Soviet countries in the 90s. So wars in Abkhazia, in South Ossetia, and Transnistria, and also Nagorno-Karabakh together have created a chain of so-called frozen conflicts in the post-Soviet space for more than already three decades, I think. But the label frozen conflict itself is very disputed among political scientists. That's very interesting and important point. And also, with regard to the post-communist countries, as Dr. Dunay mentioned before, uh, because of the Soviet oppressive rule, the tensions were mostly held back by that time. And there is another stream of arguments that artificial boundaries made by the Soviet leadership contributed to the tensions that emerged after its dissolution. Can we say that these frozen conflicts or maybe even misnamed frozen conflicts, as Nini already touched upon this, represent another detrimental legacy of the Soviet Union. You are absolutely right that there were a number of conflicts in the former Soviet space. Uh, many of them had some ethnic roots, uh, because uh, certain parts of territories of certain uh, newly independent states uh, were ethnically not representing the ethnic majority of the country. And also, we must not forget that there were countries which actually asked the question whether another republic had an, an ethnic majority uh, which was a genuine ethnic majority. This was the case between Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, where, of course, Tajikistan was, a, according to the Uzbeks, an artificial entity. Uh, in case of... Uh, Transnistria, we also had this ethnic issue because Transnistria's population uh, is far more varied than that of Moldova. Approximately one-third of the population is Moldovan, one-third of the population is Ukrainian, and one-third is Russian. The same uh, issue emerged in uh, 
the area of, of Georgia. And of course, uh, we know that there is a very sad solution for this problem uh, with the de facto independence of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, if we go back to uh, the entire question, the big issue is that we are not using the term frozen conflict uh, in an analytically accurate manner. There are frozen conflicts where nothing happens, where human relations are fairly good. Uh, people can cross borders without any difficulty. This is the case apparently in the situation in Transnistria and the Moldova. You know, Moldovans are happily going over to the other side of the Dniestro River. Uh, human relations are good. Uh, of course, there is a little inflammation here and there, but we don't see uh, any kind of violence over there. In other cases, the situation is calm, artificially frozen. This is the case of, uh, of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. This is, I think, gradually the case uh, of Crimea, which uh, has been occupied uh, by the Russian Federation and made a part of Russia. Uh, and this is not the case in Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh is not a frozen conflict. So we use the same term for situations which are very different from each other. And this is something that we have to understand that this is analytically uh, not uh, consistent. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh was always regarded to be the most volatile that can uh, inflammate at any moment. And we have seen smaller or larger uh, military clashes uh, mutual uh, killing of border guards across the border, and so on and so forth. Um, so Nagorno-Karabakh is the single most volatile so-called frozen conflict that we, after a while, tended to call protracted conflict because we only know that they are lasting for occasionally decades, three decades, two decades, in case of uh, Crimea, only for six years. So. Uh, if we want to have an analytical base, we should not use the term frozen conflict, and we should keep very clearly the difference between the various conflicts which are underway. I fully agree with you, and I think that we shouldn't really use the term frozen conflict for very distinct situations, and indeed Nagorno-Karabakh is not a frozen conflict anymore. I want slowly to move to the current events and first to touch upon the 2016 four-day war. We can say that from 1994 until 2016, there was no serious escalation of the conflict. Yes, there was low-intensity combat, but uh, still, we can say that uh, serious escalation was not present. In 2016, Azerbaijan was faced with economic crisis due to the uh, fall of the oil prices on the market and surprisingly by that time Aliyev decided to start a short military campaign in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, well, official Baku justification was that uh, they had to prevent this Armenian shelling of the civilian areas of Azerbaijan and that was the main motive uh, and that's why they were forced to start a military campaign there. My question is, uh, what do you think, was the economic crisis the turning point in 2016 that led to this war, or is that a mere externalization of domestic problems that we see? And if you can draw parallel to 2020 COVID crisis? This is an excellent question, and it requires a little bit of a broader approach to answer this question. The first thing is that both Armenia and Azerbaijan regard the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict as a major issue of domestic legitimization. Both the Armenian and the Azerbaijani leadership base their legitimacy on a stern position which is rejecting any kind of claim by the, by the other party. As it is a part of domestic legitimacy, uh, they cannot make concessions. That's a decisive issue, that there is no way that the parties could make concession. It's not a surprise that when uh, Prime Minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, 
and the president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, met in 2019 in Davos at the World Economic Forum, they agreed on something very important. They said that they have to prepare their populations for peace. And this is essential because currently nobody in either country can say, okay, we are going to seek compromise with each other. Because if you seek compromise, you are undermining your own legitimacy and you are getting out of power. This is an absolutely essential factor of understanding. And then, of course, whenever there are difficulties at home, obviously the situation uh, is driving the leaders in the direction of having some kind of lower or higher intensity military clash which unites the society behind the leadership. In 2016, indeed, Azerbaijan was suffering from falling oil prices and followed by uh, falling gas prices. Now, the problem of this is that the Azerbaijani regime has uh, significantly misappropriated resources and used for other type of purposes, including giving payments to countries that were ready to support the Azerbaijani cause, and so on and so forth. And of course, when 2016 hit, Azerbaijan was indeed in very serious economic difficulty because first and foremost, it did not diversify its economy. Azerbaijan is still living on oil and gas and a little bit of agriculture. Uh, in addition to it, Azerbaijan, if you take a look to the statistics of uh, Transparency International, the so-called Corruption Perception Index, you may say Azerbaijan is either the most corrupt or the second most corrupt European country. Uh, that means that the resources are wasted. The resources are used for political purposes, for fancy projects, Eurovision Song Contest, Eurasian uh, sports games, and so on and so forth. And they are used ineffectively. The outcome of this process is that Azerbaijan does not have the resources when a crisis hits. So the Azerbaijani leadership felt, uh, this, uh, felt that it has an opportunity to externalize the situation, because when you have an external adversary, societies have to hold together. Uh, now, of course, there is the virus. I think the virus issue is a little bit overestimated in this case. Indeed, both Azerbaijan and Armenia suffer from it, but they are not suffering to the unbearable level. And of course, also Azerbaijan, which has, of course, significant uh, GDP, much larger than the GDP of Armenia, is using external resources. Uh, Azerbaijan just hosts 150 medical doctors from Cuba. In order, the medical services would be upgraded to the necessary level. The 2020 situation has different routes than the 2016 situation. The 2016 war remained a fairly limited contingency, ended up with about 350 Casualties now, uh, we don't know how many casualties we have now, but we are definitely way beyond uh, 1,000. And of course, that uh, conflict in 2016 was very clearly and quickly interrupted. The Russian leadership stepped in and said, no, this will not continue. Lavrov, Medvedev and Putin all traveled to one capital or the other and achieved that the hostility stopped after a very short while. This is not the case now. That's true. There are a lot of casualties, unfortunately. And even though the exact numbers are unknown, Vladimir Putin said at the Valdai Discussion Club, we have almost 5,000 casualties since September 27. But I think this number is even higher today. And again, what sparked the tensions in 2020? We have to understand the underlying reason. There is a territory which is for 26 years controlled by Armenia, although it legally belongs to Azerbaijan. When you control a territory in, as a result of a military conflict, thereafter you are obliged to seek the peaceful, the peaceful settlement of disputes. 
So Armenia and Azerbaijan would be obliged to find a peaceful settlement for their difference. However, the problem is caused by the fact that Armenia is sitting on this territory, sitting on the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh and sitting on the territory of seven surrounding districts. This results in a situation that Armenia can behave fairly cynically, can say, okay, I am seeking peaceful resolution, but you cannot offer me the terms of that peaceful resolution that would be acceptable to me. And this is a highly cynical attitude. At the same time, Azerbaijan creates national unity around this issue. It was only a question of time when this conflict will flare up and will become, instead of a frozen conflict, a violent conflict. Azerbaijan learned one thing from the low-intensity hostilities from the April 2016 war and from a little uh, incursion uh, in July 2020. It learned that it cannot win a military in a military operation against Armenia on its own. It also learned that, of course, it is not only the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh proper that is at stake, but the seven districts that surround uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So after the July uh, 2020 hostilities, at the latest, and we don't know, of course, precisely, at the latest, the Azerbaijan leadership turned to Turkey for support. Turkey has always been supportive of Azerbaijan. They have excellent relations. And Turkey, uh, partly due to historical reasons uh, with the Armenians, the 1915-1916 massacres, uh, and maybe more, uh, which uh, resulted in mass casualties uh, among the Armenian population, allegedly 1.5 million people. Uh, Turkey was ready to support Azerbaijan. Turkey is supporting Azerbaijan in a variety of means, among others with weapons, but weapons are probably not the most important here. It is military advice, strategic preparation, military organization, and so on and so forth. And that's how the entire story uh, got to a high-intensity conflict. The Turkish general staff supported Azerbaijan in preparation for this war. And Azerbaijan probably simply got tired of a frozen or protracted conflict of more than uh, three decades. So the war started. And of course, Azerbaijan, with effective help from the Turkish armed forces, which is one of the largest and one of the best organized armed forces in Europe, uh, started to gain. And of course, the gains uh, resulted in occupying territories uh, which uh, are either belonging to the surrounding area uh, next to Nagorno-Karabakh or Nagorno-Karabakh proper. Uh, Azerbaijan has an unconditional backing of Turkey. Turkey says we are going to support Azerbaijan as long as Azerbaijan needs it, which basically, basically puts this matter in the hands of Azerbaijan and in the hands of external forces. Already since the beginning of the hostilities on September 27, there were two ceasefires. Neither of the ceasefires held even for a few hours, the parties went back to the hostilities. The Azerbaijanis of the, are of the view that they can win this war and they can change the situation. Of course, it's an interesting question what victory means in this context. Does it mean to take back the seven districts that surround uh, Nagorno-Karabakh from Armenia and also Nagorno-Karabakh proper? or the Azerbaijanis will have to live with somewhat less. Azerbaijan has already, uh, by and large, occupied or regained five of the seven districts. Azerbaijan also achieved that the border strip between Armenia and Iran is now controlled by Azerbaijani military forces. This creates 
an incredibly difficult situation for Armenia. So now we are in a situation when Azerbaijan is uh, achieving military victory, regaining certain parts of the territory, and of course, from those territories, the Armenian population escapes. This is resulting in an extremely difficult humanitarian situation in Armenia, which is a country of 3 million people, which is a country which is fairly poor overall, and as a consequence, the arriving refugees, or in, if you take internally displaced persons, although it's a very delicate question to use these terms, because these territories from which they escape from are actually territories that legally belong to Azerbaijan. Uh, from Nagorno-Karabakh, which has an overall population of approximately 140,000 people, already 75,000 people escaped. The 75,000 people that went over to Armenia proper are people who did not want to stay in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is, of course, militarily uh, attacked by uh, Azerbaijani forces, including the capital of the nominal capital of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Stepanakert. The situation is volatile, but the situation is very, very clearly showing that without successful external interference that would freeze this situation, Azerbaijan may gain back a significant part of the territory. Now, of course, in some cases, these territories are inhibited, are inhabited exclusively by Armenian population. In Nagorno-Karabakh, there is nobody else than Armenians, because everybody who was not Armenian basically escaped from the territory, by and large and overwhelmingly, of course, Azerbaijani uh, people. Uh, now, of course, uh, the question is when the parties can come to the point where they are satisfied with achieving what they wanted to achieve, in particular, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan will prevail, but of course Azerbaijan will have to live with the fact that it will not be able to take all the territory, the entire territory that it lost, uh, both the seven districts surrounding, Nagor surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh as well as Nagorno-Karabakh proper. And of course, controlling a territory which is fully inhabited by people who carry the ethnicity of the other party is extremely difficult. How can you control such a territory? So is there a way of ethnic cleansing guaranteeing that from the neighboring districts all the Armenians are leaving and Azerbaijan is going to fully control those territories? Now, of course, if Azerbaijan is occupying the south of Armenia, which is genuine Armenian territory, doesn't belong to the seven districts, doesn't belong to Nagorno-Karabakh, then Armenia is facing an incredibly difficult situation. Its borders with Azerbaijan as well as with Turkey are closed. If you go down to the Turkish-Armenian border, you see a fully sealed border with uh, observation posts, with three lines of, 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 of fences, and so on and so forth. So this is, this is uh, a, an impenetrable border. If Azerbaijan occupies the south of Armenia, Armenia will have from among its four neighbors, three neighbors with closed borders. It will not have access to Iran, which is very important for the Armenian economy. It will not have access to Azerbaijan and it will not have access to Turkey. It will have, it will have one remaining open border and that's with Georgia. Georgia uh, which is militarily neutral in this conflict. Military neutrality means that Georgia should not allow the crossing of any kind of military item or dual-use item through its territory from the Russian Federation to Armenia. As you already brought up Turkey as an important player in the conflict, we also need to discuss a very important third party that is Russia. Russia maintains military base in Armenia, and Armenia is part of the Collective Security Treaty Organization that is a Russian-led defense alliance, or simply to say, Russian-led NATO. 
I want to read small part from Putin's speech. This is from 22nd of October, from Valdai discussion, and I'm quoting here. Sadly, this is a fact. First in Sumgai and then in Nagorno-Karabakh, brutal crimes were committed against the Armenian people. At the same time, we understand that a situation in which a significant portion of Azerbaijan's territory is lost cannot continue indefinitely. For me, this statement is quite interesting, and I will directly move to the question. Uh, do you think that uh, Russia's kind of two-track policy can be maintained if the conflict is not resolved in the near future? Future And just to assess for us and for our audience, uh, Russia's foreign policy vis-à-vis -vis Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, South Caucasus region. This is probably one of the most important questions. Russia had a changeable policy with Armenia and Azerbaijan. During the 1990s, during the period of Boris Yeltsin, the Russian Federation was fully backing Armenia and uh, was not in good terms with Azerbaijan, which had a personal underpinning, uh, basically, that uh, then uh, Azerbaijani President Haider Aliyev, Ilham Aliyev's father, and uh, Boris Yeltsin did not really like each other, and this is going back deep in Soviet history of the 1980s, uh, when they were both in Moscow. So that was a very biased policy. The Putin uh, leadership of the last 20 years uh, created far more balanced relationship. And this balanced relationship is interesting because, as, you've heard, as you said, Armenia and the Russian Federation belong to the same Treaty of Alliance, which is the Collective Security Treaty Organization, where, of course, the Russian Federation is the ultimate matchmaker and the primus inter pares being the largest and the strongest among the parties. Armenia benefits from this by getting uh, Russian weapons and ammunition and other military items uh, under so-called national prices, which means that it's a much lower price than the international market price upon which uh, the Russian Federation sells weapons to Azerbaijan. So everything would show in the direction that the Russian Federation should be supportive of Armenia in this conflict. However, if you follow the news on Russian television and, and Russian news media elsewhere, you will see that the Russian Federation is trying to keep equal distance at best, but beyond the equal distance, I may even say that the Russian Federation is somewhat more supportive of Azerbaijan than of Armenia. This is quite interesting because when the conflict started, uh, President Putin and uh, Armenian uh, Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan were on the phone four times, whereas uh, between the top-level Azerbaijani leadership and the Russian leadership, there was no contact until October 7, when uh, Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev phoned uh, President Putin in order to congratulate upon his birthday. Uh, of course, a birthday congratulation on this level is not about birthdays, it's about, it's about more of substance. Uh, since then, the Russian Federation tried to achieve a, a, a ceasefire between the parties. Uh, the Russian leadership succeeded to bring uh, to Moscow both the Armenian and the Azerbaijani foreign minister. Uh, later on, they also had bilateral meetings uh, in Moscow with the Ar Armenian foreign minister and in Geneva with the Azerbaijani foreign minister. Apparently, nothing has yet been achieved. The Russian Federation could achieve to have a formal ceasefire agreement, which did not hold basically for a minute. Uh, then a second ceasefire followed, and that did not hold either. The Russian Federation... Uh, is sort of understanding that the Armenian position is not helping the peaceful settlement of dispute, not to mention the Russian leadership. And I think I may just indicate it rather than say, because there, there is no solid evidence, the Russian leadership is not very happy with uh, the leadership of Nikol Pashinyan in Armenia. Russia was much happier 
with the with the previous presidents of uh, of uh, of uh, Armenia and the presidential system in Armenia with Levante Petrosyan, Robert Kocharyan, and Ser Sarxian. Uh, since 2018, there is a new system and a new regime in Armenia. Uh, it's less presidential. The prime minister is the ultimate uh, ruler of the country. And uh, Nikol Pashinyan came to power uh, in a revolution, which was declared to have only domestic repercussions. But of course, then uh, somewhat later, Kocharyan was, was arrested, and a few things happened that Moscow did not really enjoy. Uh, Moscow expected Pashinyan not to have so much legitimacy as he actually happened to have. In 2018, eight months after the revolution, uh, elections were held in Armenia. And Pashinyan and Pashinyan's political forces won 70% of the votes, which was a landslide victory for Pashinyan and uh, for his uh, political course. This was quite delicate for Russia. I very well remember uh, the day after and the day thereafter on Russian television. Russian television for three days was basically mute about this matter because the victory of Pashinyan was so overwhelming and so much, may I say, disliked in Moscow. So the question is, when the Russian Federation domestically is supportive of Azerbaijan, I may say even more than it is supportive of Armenia. The question is whether Armenia, whether the Russian leadership does not have an agenda which would satisfy itself by the weakening and eventually ousting of Prime Minister Pashinyan uh, from the leadership. There is one issue that Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh are uh, physically linked by the so-called launching corridor, and that's quite a delicate matter. The Arme Armenia, even if it loses the territory surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh, cannot lose uh, the launching corridor because then uh, uh, the resupply of Nagorno-Karabakh by anything from food to military items will be impossible. It is very interesting that it seemed to me that Azerbaijan was recognizing this. Until recently, but a few days ago, Azerbaijan started to shell the launching corridor as well, which means that people who are leaving in uh, uh, leaving from uh, Nagorno-Karabakh are putting themselves at harm's way. And also it means that if you are shelling and, and bombarding uh, uh, the corridor, sooner or later, you would like to take control over it. And this is something that Armenia probably could not cope with and could not accept. I am of the view that the Russian Federation is the ultimate matchmaker. However, the difficulties between Russia and Turkey are creating in a situation when the Russian Federation uh, may not be in the position to prevail on, at, the, at the negotiating table vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis Turkey. The good news is that, as you mentioned, of course, uh, the, the CSTO applies only to the territory of Armenia, which is Armenian territory under international law, so neither the occupied territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh nor uh, Nagorno-Karabakh itself. Uh, but uh, Russia has to help, has to help uh, Armenia to the extent that Armenia would remain a viable entity. It's a small state, a weak state. Uh, so it's the question whether Russia is playing a game concerning the Armenian leadership rather than concerning the statehood of Armenia. Uh, and of course, the classical issue here that uh, the southern area of, of Armenia, which is neighboring uh, Iran and which is now controlled by Azerbaijan, is definitely a part of the legally held territory of uh, Armenia, its core Armenian territory. So here the question is whether uh, any kind of solution which would deprive Armenia of uh, the essential physical geographical link with Iran can be lost by Armenia and can be acceptable 
to a country like the Russian Federation, which must be interested in the viability of the Armenian state. I also want to quote Matthew Bryce's statement from his article for the Atlantic Council, who was a former U.S. ambassador to Azerbaijan. So in short, in the article he said, the October 9th ceasefire agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan is a diplomatic masterstroke for Putin in pursuit of his perennial goal with regard to the frozen conflicts around Russia's periphery, to keep the boat stirred but not let it boil over. Do you agree with his statement and what do you think that Moscow is trying to achieve with Nagorno-Karabakh? I think uh, Moscow's aspirations with uh, Nagorno-Karabakh are not fully settled. And of course, Matt Breiser, who was ambassador in Azerbaijan and who is now, I think, living in Istanbul uh, and runs his business from there, uh, may have, it, have his own views. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that the Russians have a set agenda. So they have an agenda which is, this is what we want to achieve and this is what we always want to achieve. The Russian Federation is regularly portrayed as a country which is interested in tension between Armenia and Azerbaijan in order that the conflict would not be settled. I am not so sure. I think for Russia, a settlement on acceptable terms would uh, reduce Russia's uh, liability. We have to understand that the fact that the Russian Federation mentally has not been able to give up on the former Soviet republics and still regards these now for 30 years or soon 30 years independent states as sort of a territories which uh, should follow Moscow's line, Moscow's rule, and so on and so forth. Which means that whenever something happens in any of these countries, the Russian Federation feels obliged and not only entitled to get involved in these conflicts. This is particularly sobering uh, during these days and weeks when simultaneously you have a conflict, an internal conflict in Belarus, where people demonstrate against uh, uh, President Lukashenko already for uh, more than two months. Uh, you have a conflict, an internal conflict in Bishkek, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, where there is a meltdown of central authorities and uh, Russia is waiting for some kind of uh, demonstration of loyalty from the new rulers and leaders of Kyrgyzstan. And there is Nagorno-Karabakh. And of course, wherever Russia looks, it does not have an easy and consolidated relationship with countries. It has problems with Moldova because the Transnistria and also Moldova's association agreement. It has uh, significant problems with Georgia. Uh, it has problems with a number of other former Soviet republics in Central Asia. Uh, so Russia, uh, as long as Russian mentality is not changing and Russia is not ready to recognize that these are conflicts, these are countries which are not his responsibility, uh, this situation will not change and Russia will be overwhelmed and heavily burdened by any uh, major political development in uh, the former so-called Soviet space. Uh, this is an issue which has been an issue except for the first few years after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union when uh, a fairly liberal Russian attitude tried to keep more distance in many cases. Uh, but now Russia sees that its authority and leadership is challenged basically everywhere. Whether right, Russia will draw the right conclusion from this, I'm very doubtful because the Russian Federation also wants to be a pole of a multipolar international order. And I think the political analysts, even those who are so sophisticated and knowledgeable as Matt Breiser, will have to understand that this is a moving target and Russia may not have an agenda which is there to stay. I think we also need to discuss Georgia's role in this conflict. As you have already mentioned Georgia before, because it's directly bordering both Azerbaijan and Armenia and has a big minority of both communities. And so Georgia has been trying at least to maintain a neutral position since the beginning of the conflict, but 
we we know that both parties have voiced they might use Georgia as a corridor to pass military equipment and weapons. So if the peace is not reached in the near future and the conflict escalates even further, do you think that Georgia will be able to maintain that neutral position or will it be automatically dragged in the conflict? This is an extremely important and very good question. The, the, for me, the question is somewhat different. I don't think that Georgia can give up on its neutrality in this conflict. I mean military neutrality. This is not permanent neutrality. It's military neutrality related to this concrete conflict. The question is whether Georgia is in the position to realize its commitment of military neutrality. If all the other borders of Armenia are closed, Georgia remains the only land border of Armenia which remains open. And currently we are in this situation. As a consequence, Georgia, which is of course a country which has a very uh, changeable relationship with the Russian Federation, uh, will, I am afraid, occasionally have to look the other way when the Russian Federation is providing reinforcement to Armenia. And in these cases, of course, Georgia would violate its own commitment, but I doubt that Georgia is uh, strong enough uh, to enforce this kind of uh, military neutrality uh, on a full scale. Obviously, Georgia is not going to get involved in this conflict, but whether Georgia can help, can, can keep its commitment and guarantee that uh, Russia is unable to resupply uh, Armenia is a very doubtful proposition. Georgia, of course, we have to understand, is a country where Armenians and Azerbaijanis can see each other face to face. Georgia is the country where the permanent representative of the Minsk group is sitting in Tbilisi and operating from there, visiting the two capitals, occasionally also Nagorno-Karabakh, and so on and so forth. So Georgia is, is, is an important player, and we mustn't forget, and this is something that maybe the Georgian population uh, knows a little bit less, uh, that Georgia is a transit post of uh, Turkish export to Armenia. Turkey is having economic relations with Armenia, but not directly because the borders are closed and uh, Turkey is of the view that as long as the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict is not resolved, it is not going to reconsider its position and reopen the relationship uh, and the border with Armenia. Uh, so Georgia is important in helping uh, the the viability of the Armenian economy. Armenia is a small, landlocked, fairly poor country. Uh, as a consequence, Georgia has these multiple links. Besides Georgia, we need to discuss Iran as well, that is another neighboring country, and you've already mentioned it before. Uh, in this context, Iran is also important because it has a big Azerbaijani minority, and we can say actually millions of ethnically Azerbaijanis live there. As we know, Iran has played the role of mediator in 1992 when President Rafsanjani led the peace talks between Armenian and uh, Azerbaijani leaders. Uh, what's the position of Iran right now, and if there is any possibility Iran to engage in this conflict? Iran is a very interesting case. Iran is a Shia Muslim country that, of course, should very strongly support another Muslim state in this case, and that would be Azerbaijan. The situation, I may say, is just to the contrary. Iran has better relationship with Armenia than it has with Azerbaijan. And this is partly related to the fact that there is an Azerbaijani minority in Iran, which is extremely large. We don't have official data, uh, but it varies between 17 to 30 million people in a country of just above 80 million. As a consequence, uh, 
the Azerbaijani majority is causing a lot of headache to uh, the uh, Iranian leadership. Of course, already there was, a, I think, a helicopter that uh, fell on Iranian territory uh, in the war. Uh, Iran, of course, tries to stay out of this conflict as much as it can, and it continues to stay out of this conflict. But it, we have to come to the surprising conclusion that for Iran, Armenia is an easier partner, which is a Christian state, if you take, uh, than Azerbaijan, which is, a, which is a Muslim country. This is a very volatile relationship, and the Iranian leadership uh, is, is extremely sensitive about it in order to avoid that it would in any manner be pulled into the conflict. If you take a look, uh, Iran usually uh, also was used as a, as a, as a bridge to supply and resupply Armenia with different economic goods. Uh, and of course, if, Arme if Azerbaijan seals the border off, uh, this would be an extremely difficult uh, matter for Iran to cope with. I think that, uh, among others, due to the CSTO issue, that this is legitimate and legally held Armenian territory, as we speak about. I think that whenever this conflict, the violent phase comes to an end, uh, that border will go back to Armenia on one side and Iran on the other, and the economic relations, the resupply of the Armenian economy uh, will, will continue uh, from that direction, because without it, it will be an extremely difficult situation for Iran. And of course, uh, for, for Armenia, and of course, Iran wants to continue to support uh, Armenia as a, as, a, as a party. Let's talk about other players that do not really take any active measure in the conflict, such as United States and the European Union. Well, there's elections in the US and European Union has its own problems, such as Brexit and the conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean. So Nagorno-Karabakh might not be their top priority right now, but the region is not insignificant for those two actors. We also need to mention that South Caucasus has a very significant transportation and energy infrastructure, and because of its significance, United States and the European Union should be more interested to resolve the conflict. But we haven't really seen any important steps taken by the European leaders. How can we explain the European Union's neutrality game? And do you think that European Union, or, or maybe the West in general, is doing enough? The US is absolutely busy with these things. The only thing that the US could achieve was a visit of the Armenian and the Azerbaijani foreign minister uh, to the United States. Uh, the US, some time ago, uh, played some role, the so-called Key West meeting under the able leadership of George W. Bush, uh, when Armenian and Azerbaijani leaders had to assemble and meet face to face uh, with the US leadership trying to sort out the problem, which was impossible to sort. Uh, as a consequence, the US is, is temporarily too busy with its domestic agendas, uh, with the extremely sobering number of casualties in the coronavirus pandemic, and so on and so forth. So the US is usually willing to play a role, but this is not the time. Whether the situation will change after November 3, if Donald Trump eventually continues, which looks quite unlikely now, or if Joe Biden comes in on January 20 or 21, and then starts pulling the shots, that, that may be a different situation. The European Union, as you rightly said, is also extremely busy with a number of other agenda points. Uh, it's Brexit, it's internal disputes, uh, migration issues, uh, and so on and so forth. But, George, but, but we have to understand that the European Union has always been in a crisis. You know, it always looked like a crisis, whether it was a crisis or whether it was not a crisis is a secondary question. Uh, so the question was, is there, a, is there a crisis that makes the European Union incapable of inter intervening or participating in this? So we have to understand that among the Eastern partners, Armenia and Azerbaijan are less important uh, for uh, the European Union than either uh, Georgia, Ukraine, 
or eventually Moldova, the three countries which signed association agreements, including deep and comprehensive free trade agreements. Armenia signed a much uh, more watered-down arrangement, which is focusing near exclusively on the economic issues, and Azerbaijan is negotiating a similar arrangement uh, with the European Union, again focusing exclusively on economic issues. These countries are not prospective candidates. None of the Eastern Partnership countries are, but but they are sort of even further down the, the, the road. Uh, the economic interaction, of course, is important. In case of Armenia, it is more about the assistance of the uh, European Union to Armenia. In case of Azerbaijan, it's a more uh, balanced uh, relationship because, of course, Azerbaijan is, is, is economically more vibrant and more important. Uh, however, it is so incredibly corrupt that it is pretty difficult to think about the EU getting more engaged. So we basically see that the West as such is largely absent uh, from this uh, conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and I don't expect it to change uh, significantly. Azerbaijan is, is of course, a major hydrocarbon uh, supplier of the West. It has the baku tbilisi Jehan uh, pipeline, which is important because it ends up on the Mediterranean and hence uh, further export of, of uh, the raw material is, uh, or actually oil is possible over there. Now, the, the, the only issue that I think we should consider further is that Armenia uh, is in the long run losing massively due to the uh, conflict with Azerbaijan. Infrastructure is not crossing Armenian territory, the Baku-Bilisi-Jehan pipeline, if you take a look to the map, you see that it is going from Azerbaijan to Georgia, in the very south of Georgia, so pretty close to the Armenian border, but it avoids Armenia. Infrastructure development is not going to Armenia. As a consequence, Armenia in the long run is massively uh, suffering uh, from the consequences of the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. It would be good if it were, uh, it would change, but it is not going to change uh, unless uh, there is a big arrangement which is finally satisfying everybody, every party to this conflict and also the countries which are backing the parties, in this case, first and foremost, uh, Russia and Turkey. While discussing the role of West in this conflict, what do you think on Minsk Group? Do you think that they will manage to make decisive steps in this conflict and achieve something. We haven't yet talked about the Minsk Group. The Minsk Group is the dedicated body established by the OSCE back in 1994. Basically, its activity started in 1995, uh, which is co-chaired by three countries, uh, which are France, the Russian Federation, and the United States. Uh, this arrangement has, of course, a local representation in Tbilisi, where a ranking diplomat is sitting, who is keeping contact with the parties. For a long time, it was a Polish diplomat uh, for more than 20 years. And, of course, there was significant dissatisfaction, not with his activity, but with the activity of the Minsk Group overall. The three ambassadors who are dedicated uh, to work on the Minsk Group agenda are enjoying each other's company, but not much is happening except for uh, more or less accurate reporting. I don't have high hopes in the in the Minsk group. Uh, the three countries have their position. Their position is very different, and it is not going to be reconciled uh, in the sense of resulting in a resolution. It is, it is a body which uh, we have to have because we have no other, but this body is not pulling its weight through, uh, which is, of course, a major tragedy for this conflict, that the only dedicated body is basically, uh, if I may say, moribund. Just to briefly conclude our discussion, my very last question would be, is Nagorno-Karabakh an example of, uh, of stalemate and instability? And do you think that so many failed peace agreements 
have just created an unnecessary deadlock in the region. Nagorno-Karabakh has been with us for more than three decades. Uh, there is indeed a stalemate. Uh, there is a, a famous American scholar who was mainly an Africanist who, who was uh, speaking about when these kind of conflicts get resolved. And he was of the view that uh, parties tend to move when they face a so-called hurting stalemate, a mutually hurting stalemate, when they no longer can live with the, with the status quo. And so I can very well imagine that this kind of stalemated situation uh, will continue. I was always of the view that if I held a lecture on this uh, in, 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 in 20 years, uh, I could probably say the same thing. Now I'm no longer so sure. I think that the situation on the ground is moving and changing uh, with lasting repercussions. I think the fact that uh, uh, Azerbaijan, with the support of Turkey, has gained so much military superiority will have to uh, have an impact on changing the, the conflict dynamic uh, between the two parties. Dr. Dunay, thank you so much for being our guest today and giving very informative and insightful comments. Thanks a lot. It's very kind of you. It was a pleasure and I'm, I'm very grateful for you to, to have invited me for this. Thank you. This was today's Shadow of the Future, a podcast on global politics. My name is Nini and I was co-hosting with Tekla today. Thank you very much for listening and sticking with us on our very first episode. Future episodes will be available at Elta website, our Facebook page, Spotify and all those places. We're looking forward to connect again and until then, keep an eye on the world.